You are listening to Real Presence Radio. In the next hour, we have Dr. Jan George from Sacred Heart Productions, teaching on Acts of the Apostles. Dr. George, a retired university teacher of literature, has a Master of Theology from the University of Dallas. She is here today covering the following three topics, from Acts chapter 3 through chapter 5, verse 11. The name of Jesus, second, faith and miracles, and third, life in the Christian community. Tune in at this time when Dr. George will be walking us through Acts of the Apostles from Knowing the Scriptures Bible Study, produced by Sacred Heart Productions. Accompanying lessons for each week can be found online at sacredheartproductions.org. Here is Dr. George covering the name of Jesus, and then she will move into Faith and Miracles. Glory be to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Spirit. Amen. We begin this lesson with the amazing miracle performed by Peter as he and John go into the temple for late afternoon or evening prayer. Now in order to understand this miracle, and in fact all the wondrous things which St. Luke records in Acts of the Apostles, of the Apostles and the early church, we must understand what God has revealed concerning the name Jesus, concerning the power of the name of Jesus. No one has ever seen God, as divine revelation tells us throughout the Old Testament. Only the Son, who is in the bosom of the Father, has known Him. Therefore, because He has seen the Father, only Jesus Christ can reveal Him. Only Jesus Christ truly knows the Father. Therefore, if we want to know the Father, we must know the Son. Christ is the door to the Father. He is knowledge of the Father. He is the revelation of the Father. The divine name, as God revealed under the Old Testament, may not be spoken by human lips. There is a sense of the sacredness, the holiness of God, and the fact that God was untouchable, so to speak, under the Old Testament. The people could not even touch the Ark of the Covenant without dying. Now, in the age of the New Testament, in the age of Christ, we can not only touch the Ark of the Covenant, in fact, in a certain way, we are members of that Ark, we can touch the tabernacle which holds the Holy of Holies, we can receive God Himself in the Eucharist. Not only do we not die, but in receiving God, in touching God, in communicating with God, we have life. We are given eternal life. So the divine name may not be spoken by human lips, but by assuming our humanity, the Word of God hands over to us accessibility to God. What is it that we understand about name? A name, a name of a person, always signifies, points to, means something in regard to the identity and the mission of the person. That's true for all of us, but only God, only the name of God, only His name signifies the very presence of God Himself. So when God reveals that His name is Jesus, 
Because remember, the archangel reveals to Joseph and to Mary that this child to be born will be called Jesus, a name which means God saves. God is handing over to us his own power, in a sense, immediate accessibility to him. If we're in a crowd of people and someone calls out our name, we stop. We wonder, someone has called upon us, someone knows us, someone recognizes us, someone calls out of us a response, an immediate response. We immediately turn to engage, to interact with that person. In a sense, when someone knows the name of another, the other is giving access to that person's power, in a sense, to that person's identity. Well, this is true in an eminent kind of way with regard to God. So the name of Jesus is the only name that contains the presence it signifies. The name of Jesus contains all. God and man and the whole economy of creation and salvation, as the church tells us. We must also recall that when Jesus, when Jesus returns to the Father, when Jesus ascends and is seated at the right hand of the Father, Jesus the Son and the Father send the Spirit. Send the Spirit to those who believe in Him, because faith is always this element that opens us up to receiving the mystery of God. Jesus communicates then, communicates His glory. And what is His glory? The Holy Spirit who glorifies Him. He communicates His glory to those who believe in Him. So that, from that time on, the Church speaks of this joint mission of the Son and the Holy Spirit, this joint mission, which would be manifested in the children adopted by the Father, adopted by the Father, in the body of the Son. We are those children, just as the early Christians were those children. In receiving Christ's Spirit, the Spirit, God Himself, dwells in us, lives in us, works in us and through us. This then is the key to understanding the miracle that we encounter in, at the beginning of chapter 3 in Acts of the Apostles. As Peter and John and all the apostles, as the apostolic church teaches us from the beginning to the present day, when miracles are performed through the church, the sacraments, we must say, are miraculous works of God. When they are done, it is because of the Spirit living in the church. Peter and John point to God and not to themselves, to their own power, to their own holiness, in answering people's questions about how did this happen? Where did you get this power? How did this miracle come about? So we begin then, chapter 3, with Peter and John going into the temple to pray, as St. Luke tells us, at the ninth hour of the day. Now the ninth hour of the day would have been 3 p.m. And the Jewish people, much as the praying church does to this day, went to the temple to pray twice a day. They had morning prayer or their morning offerings, which began from dawn and lasted for several hours until about 9 a.m. And then they had their evening prayer or evening offerings, which began at the ninth hour at 3 p.m. and lasted again for several hours. And this would have been until dusk. 
the Jews would have passed through the gates of Jerusalem. They were crowded with people passing through the gates, going to the temple, where there were sacrifices being offered, prayers being said, the scriptures were being read, people were being taught. It was a sense of rooting one's life at the beginning and at the end of every day in God. The morning and evening prayer of the church, which we pray now, is not something the church, the church tramped up some centuries after the church came into existence. No, God had formed his people in this way. God had mandated that they pray and offer themselves in sacrifice upon rising every day and at the end of every day before going to sleep at night. It is God who orchestrates or pulls together and puts in place everything that happens in this scene. Because what is going to happen after the miracle is that it will lead to a series of important events. In fact, we will still be reading about the consequence of this miracle at the end of chapter 4. This is two full chapters. The miracle leads to one thing after another so that God can be proclaimed to his people in Christ his Son. People are crowding into the temple then at the ninth hour. And as we are told by St. Luke, there was a particular man crippled from birth who always asked to be placed there at the beautiful gate. It would have been a gate that was close to the Gentile court of the temple. So it's a gate that was used by many people as they went into the temple at the end of the day. Now he is placed there because he wants to beg from people. And that's the case this particular day. They would have known him. Many of the Jews would have known him because he had lived in this community from birth. As we find out a chapter later, he was over 40 years old. So it had been many years that they had seen him begging. And the fact that he was always at this passageway where many of the Jews would enter and exit for morning and evening prayer. They knew who this man was because God is going to use this as clear evidence of the miracle that he performs at the hands of his apostles. Peter and John start to go through the passageway or the doorway and he begs from them as St. Luke tells us. He expected to get something from them. He was begging from them. Peter and John stop and they look directly at him and say, look at us. Now they're doing this because they are engaging him in a personal way as God engages us any and every time he is about to bless us. He is about to, he calls out of us an act of faith. It may be a small act. It may be an imperfect act. Even this man makes a small act of faith because as Jesus reveals in his public ministry that faith is essential, that in places where there was no faith, he was not able to work miracles. So the man makes some act of faith. It may have been imperfect, but he had the desire to be healed. He had the desire to be fed. He had the desire for a better form of life. And it is this that calls out of him the act of faith, which leads to the miracle. So by telling him to look directly at them, he is engaging this man in a personal way, and he is sort of making time pause for a moment because he wants, they want this crippled man to know that in this moment God is present and willing to do something for him. 
This is not just a regular natural moment, and it's not just about earthly kind of food. It's about something far more profound. Peter then says to him, Silver and gold I do not have, but what I do have I give to you. Now it's important that he say, Silver and gold I do not have. Jesus, in sending out his disciples, we read this in the Gospel of St. Matthew, tells them not to take silver or gold with them or copper coins for their purse. In the first place, God is telling his disciples, you must trust in me, in my providence. I will provide. If you go out in my name to proclaim me and you spend time and energy worrying about where you're going to sleep and what you're going to eat and the clothes you're going to put on your back, you will not be nearly as effective a disciple as you could be. Don't worry about this. Everything will be provided for you. But there's another element here, something even more important. Silver and gold buy things of this life, earthly things. It's an earthly measure of riches, of treasure. The treasure that God gives us in His Son is priceless. It cannot be bought with silver or gold. In fact, to try to buy the holy things of God would profane those very things. To this day, the church cannot sell the sacraments. Even sacramentals, sacred objects, once they are blessed, cannot be sold. To sell them is to profane them. They lose their blessing. They would have to be blessed again. We cannot, we cannot put a price on the holy things of God and on what God has given freely to us. This is why Jesus says in sending out his apostles, you have been given this as gift without charge. Therefore, you must in turn give the gift of God without charge. We cannot attach a price to it. So he says, I have neither silver nor gold, but what I do have I give to you. What is it Peter has? He has the name of Jesus, the power of the name of Jesus, living in him and at work in him through the Holy Spirit. This is why Peter says, in the name of Jesus Christ the Nazarene, stand up and walk. Instantly, there is such power in the name. Instantly, the man stands up, Peter helps him up, and he begins walking and jumping and running and praising God throughout the temple area. It is an amazing miracle, amazing not only for the man, but for all those going into the temple area to begin the evening prayers. Now they knew this man had been crippled from birth, and now he has been healed by some of the disciples, the followers of Jesus. Jesus had performed miracles like this too. But now his followers are doing the very same thing. And they are, they are completely struck by this and want to know the answer. The answer to the question is Peter's opportunity to proclaim Christ, which is what will happen in the remainder of chapter 3 and chapter 4. Scripture tells us that everyone was astonished and perplexed at what had happened to the crippled man. And everyone came running towards them, the apostles and the man, with great excitement in the portico of Solomon, where the man was still clinging to Peter and John. Now, people begin to gather around the apostles. Peter sees that God has given him this opportunity to proclaim the Son. 
So what does he say? Men of Israel, he begins. Why? Because it is the devout men of Israel, the Jews and the proselytes, those who were Gentile converts to Judaism, who are entering the temple for the evening prayer. Men of Israel, he says, why are you so surprised at this? Why are you staring at us as though we had made this man walk by our own power or holiness? Those who are humble servants of the Lord always defer to God. They understand that whatever miracles are worked at their hands, whatever marvelous things happen through them, that they are simply human instruments and poor ones at that. We are sinful instruments, weak instruments. We are poor. We have the poverty of our humanity. But God works with those who love him. Peter goes on, it is the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. The God of our ancestors, he begins to say. Now the Jews would have liked this testimony because throughout Israel for many centuries, we read this frequently in the Hebrew scriptures, all the marvels of God were spoken about in such a way that the honor always went back to the God of our ancestors, the God of our fathers, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. The Lord always said, it is the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob who has done this for you, who has worked this marvel in your presence. So when Peter begins, it is the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, they are listening to him because he is proclaiming the God that they know should be given honor. He goes on, who has glorified his servant Jesus, who has glorified his servant Jesus, whom you handed over and then disowned in the presence of Pilate after he had given his verdict to release him. And he goes on, you killed the Prince of Life. Just as with the earlier kerygma, the proclamation of the gospel that we heard at Pentecost on the lips of Peter, in a similar way, he takes this opportunity, he sort of roots the proclamation in the Hebrew scriptures, what the prophets had foretold of the one to come, of the Messiah, the anointed one of God, who would suffer at the hands of men. He would suffer, but it was all according to God's own plan and design, the foreknowledge of God. He says, God, however, because they knew that Jesus, not long before this, died. He was crucified and died. They all saw this. And what is it the apostles always proclaim? That the one who died, they have seen that he has risen from the dead, and to this we are witnesses. This is always at the core of the proclamation of the gospel. So he says, God, however, raised him from the dead, and to that fact we are witnesses, they and hundreds of others following the resurrection. And it is in the name of Jesus, which through faith in him, Peter says, has brought back the strength of this man whom you see here and who is well known to you. Because they're not going to be able to push this aside as if to say, perhaps he wasn't crippled. Perhaps this is a trick done to us. God has orchestrated everything. He has laid it out. It is Jesus who has brought back the strength of this man whom you see here and who is well known to you. It is faith in him that has restored this man to health, as you can all see. He goes on to say, and now, brothers, I know you did not fully understand what you were doing 
when you crucified the Lord. He says this to explain, to say that it was according to God's plan and foreknowledge, but we cannot deny the fact that we all had a role in that. Therefore, and having salvation proclaimed to us, there is always this call to repentance. The prophets had it and the prophetic church, the voice of the church. What is it that she is proclaiming in calling us to salvation in Christ? She says, repent and believe in the gospel because we must have a change of heart, a conversion of heart. That's why with receiving the Holy Spirit that God pours out on the church at Pentecost, it is the Holy Spirit that cleanses our heart of sin, heals our heart, and gives us a new heart, a heart of flesh, to replace the heart of stone, which is the kind of heart that sins. So Peter says, now you must repent and turn to God so that your sins may be wiped out and so that the Lord may send this time of comfort. What is the time of comfort? The comforter is the Holy Spirit. The time of comfort is the time of consolation, the time of peace. The time of comfort refers to the peace and consolation and healing that we receive when we receive the Holy Spirit. That is why at, at Pentecost, when Peter says the same thing, repent and be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ so that your sins may be forgiven and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit, he says to the people to whom he is speaking. Similarly here, he says, so that you may, you may enter that time of comfort. He goes on to quote Moses. Moses, in a sense, was a kind of founder for Israel because it was to Moses that God had revealed the law through the mediation of angels. So there is a way in which that is sort of a, a foundational time for Israel. Moses is one of the most important figures in salvation history for Israel. So Peter quotes Moses. He is quoting the book of Deuteronomy. He is quoting the Torah when he says, from among your brothers, the Lord God will raise up for you a prophet like me, he says, quoting Moses. They knew, because Moses had foretold, that God would raise up a great prophet, greater than Moses. It is this to which Moses is witnessing at the transfiguration of Jesus. When Moses and Elijah are there, the prophets and the law, two of the greatest prophets, there is a way in which Moses is a prophet, two of the greatest prophets Israel had ever known. They are there bearing witness to Jesus, to Jesus, as if to say for Moses that this is the prophet of whom I spoke that would come after me and be far greater than I. He says, you must listen to whatever he tells you. God says, anyone who refuses to listen to that prophet shall be cut off from the people. Now, Peter knows what he's doing by quoting this because he is revealing that Jesus is the one whom Moses foretold was to come and that God himself had said when he sends that great one that you, Israel, must listen to him and whoever refuses to listen to him shall be cut off from the people. This is devastating to them in light of the fact that if they are wrong in this matter, they are deadly wrong. They are eternally wrong in this matter. They cannot count themselves among the faithful of God. We recall what St. Paul writes in his letter to the Hebrews. Speaking of the same matter, he says, if a message spoken through the angels 
proved so reliable. Now he's talking about the message, the law mediated through the angels to Moses on Mount Sinai. He says, if a message spoken through the angels proved so reliable that every infringement and disobedience brought its own proper punishment, he says, then we shall not go unpunished if we neglect a salvation so great as this. The law wasn't even salvation. The law couldn't save. The law was, was a tutor to the people. The law couldn't save, and yet, in a certain kind of imperfect way, it revealed salvation. But it couldn't give them the power to do what they had to do in order to be holy in the sight of God. And so he says, if now we have actually been given salvation, and if we neglect such a great salvation, we shall certainly not go unpunished, St. Paul says. Thanks for listening to Dr. George on Real Presence Radio. For more information, please visit sacredheartproductions.org. In this next segment, Dr. George will continue with Faith and Miracles. And now, back to Dr. George. Now, the people, because the Jews were no doubt gathered around, around Peter and John and the man, the crippled man who had been healed, many had gathered around, and among them, of course, were Sadducees. And not surprising, because the Sadducees would have been going into the temple to make their offerings and prayers. The Sadducees were the priestly aristocracy. So many of them, most of them, hopefully all of them, would have gone into the temple twice a day to pray. We recall what we find out in the Gospel about the Sadducees. The Sadducees did not believe in the resurrection. They are the ones who came to Jesus and tried to trap him with the question. They had conjured up this his question about a woman married to seven men and so on and so forth. They're trying to trick Jesus, but Jesus tells them that he says, you are wrong. You are wrong in your thinking. You are wrong and everything you present to me is what he is saying because you know, you understand neither the scriptures nor the power of God. It is true that many of the Jews believed in some kind of resurrection. There is indication of that in the Hebrew scriptures. There is a Jewish tradition that teaches the resurrection in a very provisional and imperfect way. They believed that the God of life, who created man in his image and likeness, had some design in mind that we would live to be like God, that we would live forever, but they understood that man had fallen and lost that grace, that life in God. But they believed so much in God's goodness and in his power, that in some way unbeknownst to man, unbeknownst to Israel, that God would somehow fulfill not only that original plan, but the desire that he had written into man himself. Because we don't want to die. We're made for life. We love life. We want to live. And that God would answer that desire in man. So they believed there would be some way in which perhaps the spirit of man would live on after death. Even natural men, even the pagans in their hope for this, believed in some sense, some hope, that there was some kind of life for the spirit after death. But the Sadducees completely rejected it as beyond anything that was possible to man, and that it was outside any kind of a truth according to the order of creation. So they are very upset. Now, why are they upset? In the first place, because Peter John and the other apostles, and no doubt the man who has just had this miracle performed for him, are proclaiming Christ risen from the dead. 
And there is evidence that there is real power in the name of Jesus, who already died, but because there's power in his name, he must still be alive. Jesus lives because it is in the name of Jesus Christ the Nazarene that the miracles performed. If anyone had asked the cripple this, how did this happen? He would say, they pronounced the name of Jesus Christ over me, and I stood up and walked. So it's upsetting, but there's another element here. St. Luke, it's sort of a minor theme that runs throughout Acts of the Apostles, but it's important that the church is growing by leaps and bounds in her earliest days by the power of the Holy Spirit. And so St. Luke will repeatedly refer back to the growth of the church in very specific ways. We have at the beginning, after Christ dies and then he rose from the dead, and there is just this faithful little remnant, trembling and fearful, gathered in the upper room with the doors locked for fear of the Jews, praying there. And from this, they witness to the risen Christ, and the numbers begin to grow so that at the beginning of Acts of the Apostles, we have a small group, a little flock of about 120 people. Then we have Pentecost, and what happens? St. Luke records that 3,000 were added to their number that day. Now we've had the miracle of Peter and John. What does St. Luke tell us? After they arrested Peter and John, it was late, so they kept them in prison till the next day. But, verse 4, chapter 4, but many of those who had listened to their message became believers. The total number of men had now risen to something like 5,000. In days, the church goes from this tiny number to 5,000. There is a way in which faith, even small acts of faith, open the way to miracles. Now this is true in Scripture, God is teaching us this, but it's something that we need to learn in our own lives, that faith opens the way to miracles, and that the marvelous works of God, in turn, open others up to faith, to receiving the gift of faith. This is what is happening in these chapters of Acts of the Apostles. There is faith in the man who desires healing, who desires wholeness. And God, in his abundant goodness, miraculously cures him. That faith, in turn, it leads the way to the proclamation of Jesus Christ, is what happens. And in the proclamation of Christ, people are brought into the fold. They become believers in Jesus. They want to share in this same kind of healing, this same kind of life. So miracles then open us up to faith. At the same time, if we are hard-hearted, if we are stubborn in our resistance to God, what happens is that we have to dig our heels in more and more, especially in the face of these amazing works of God. Now it's true that by the light of our natural reason, man can know with certainty that God exists, that there is a God. We can know this. God has written this into our being so that we can come, we can come to this conclusion, naturally speaking, just by examining the works of God. That's why God himself, that's why the sacred authors of the Old Testament say, how is it that man has pondered the marvels of creation so many centuries and been so slow to see God, see the author, the creator of these things. There is another order then, we have the natural order of creation, but there is another order 
the church tells us, which man cannot arrive at by his own natural powers, and that's the order of divine revelation. Christ, of course, is the definitive revelation of the Father, but there are other kinds of marvelous works of God, of miracles, that God uses to speak to us. Now, as the church tells us, what moves us to believe divine revelation, and in this particular case it's the, the miraculous healing of the man who was crippled from birth, what moves us to believe is not the fact that revealed truths appear true or intelligible to our senses. Now, God wants faith from us. We want reason satisfied, and God wants reason satisfied also. But reason, an act of the intellect, is not a higher act than an act of faith. By trying to put God within the confines of natural reason, we will not come to know God. We can only know God through the Holy Spirit who reveals Him. That's a whole nother order beyond the natural order, even though God still works within the natural order in which He has created us. Why do we believe in divine revelation? Because the author is God Himself, who cannot deceive or be deceived. The Church tells us, so that the submission of our faith might nevertheless be in accordance with our reason, God has willed external proofs of revelation that they should be joined with the internal helps of the Holy Spirit. They work together. This is what happens in the matter of miracles, that the marvelous works of God in a certain sense satisfy reason. Science cannot explain a miracle, but when the miracle is clear and indisputable, science must at least acknowledge the fact of it. And that's what's happening here. So that in a sense, reason is satisfied in saying, I don't know how it happened, but I must acknowledge that it did, because I am a witness to this. I knew this man from birth, in the case of the crippled man, for example. I knew this man from birth. I've seen him for years and years as a beggar at the gates of Jerusalem. And now, of an instant, there would have been some who said, I saw him five minutes ago crippled up at the gate of Jerusalem, and here he is jumping and singing the praises of God. Even our reason must acknowledge the truth, that external proof, so to speak, that God gives us, even though we cannot explain it. So God is also giving us internal helps of the Holy Spirit. What are examples of these? The Church tells us the miracles of Christ. This is much of what is going on in the Gospels and the public ministry of Christ. The miracles of Christ and His Church, the miracles of the saints, prophecies are the same kind of thing. The Church's growth, the Church's inexplicable, to the world, growth and holiness. The Church is invincible. She cannot be destroyed, no matter how much she is mistreated and persecuted and crushed. She is invincible. That's inexplicable to the world. The Church's growth and holiness, her fruitfulness and stability. St. Luke is speaking about this, that in spite of the fact that they're a little flock of seemingly poor men and women, there are miracles, amazing miracles, that are being performed at the hands of the Apostles. These are most certain kinds of signs of divine revelation, as the Church says, adapted to the intelligence of all. God is 
adapting his works to our intelligence so that, so that we can understand. What they are, are motives of credibility. God is calling us to faith, inviting us to faith. As Jesus says, you believe in God, believe also in me. These are motives of credibility which show the world that the ascent of faith as Christians is not some blind impulse of the mind, that we're somehow dumbing down our own power capacity to believe in God. Faith is a higher act than reason, but God who is the God of our faith is the God of reason, the God of science, the God of creation and the natural order, and they cannot contradict themselves. Now this is important in chapter 4 when Peter and John come before the Sanhedrin. Why? Because God has given them proof, so to speak. He has given them this external kind of proof of revelation because they're hard-hearted. He wants them, he's calling them to faith in his Son. And it's the Holy Spirit revealing this. They have a choice. Either they're going to have to admit that we can't explain this, but now the apostles who are doing this in the name of Jesus, that there is something to this, they're either going to have to go that way, or they're going to have to root themselves even more firmly in their hard-heartedness, one or the other. So, Peter then, when they ask him about this, he has his opportunity to again proclaim Jesus Christ risen from the dead, and that only in him is their salvation, for of all the names in the world given to men, this is the only one by which we can be saved. That's the conclusion to what Moses had proclaimed, the prophet that they waited for. Now we have him, Jesus Christ. Now they're astonished, they can't explain it, they're upset, and they want this to go away and it isn't going away. It's getting worse. So they tell them to go outside while they convene and talk about it. And it's interesting that here, as in other places in the Gospels, we have recorded a conversation that goes on amongst the Jews that the apostles in this case would not have been privy to, but we later have it recorded in the scripture. Why? Because God is telling us that there were those among the people who convened who later converted to Christianity and who said, do you remember that day we were in that room talking? This is what we were saying. Some said this and others said that. We have instances of this in the gospel also. What is their response? They say it is obvious to everybody in Jerusalem that a notable miracle has been worked through them and we cannot deny it. Behind closed doors, they're speaking the truth and their heart makes them because we're made for truth. We have to speak the truth. But, now this reveals their resistance, but to stop this whole thing from spreading any further among the people, let us threaten them against ever speaking to anyone in this name again. Now they can't prove them guilty. But they are taking an action as the Sanhedrin that if they warn them never to do this again and they are caught doing it, they can find them guilty just on the fact that they broke the command of the Sanhedrin. So they, they do the strongest thing, they take the strongest action or measure they can take, which is to command them, you may never speak or use the name again. What is their response? Well, they're fearless. They say, you tell us, you must be the judge. Is it more pleasing to God that we listen to God or listen to you? They're telling him, no, we must listen to God. They are also revealing in that testimony that God himself has sent them forth. 
and that they must proclaim his name. They don't know what to do. They could think of no way of punishing them, St. Luke writes. And all the people were giving the glory to God for what had happened. They're in a dilemma because they're the ones who say they love God, the Pharisees and the scribes and the Sadducees. And what is it they're trying to crush? All these people in the city of Jerusalem are proclaiming the goodness and the marvels of God. They're trying to crush this. There's something very wrong in this scene. What God is doing is that he is making known to them the sin in their heart, but they have to, they have to pay attention to that. Thanks for listening to Dr. George on Real Presence Radio. For more information, please visit sacredheartproductions.org. In this final segment, Dr. George will cover life in the Christian community. Finally, we discover that Peter and John are released and they go back into the community and we wonder, well, how do they respond? Do they go in trembling and say, boy, we're going to have to be careful from this point forward or we're going to have to be more cautious about how we proclaim the name? No, they are filled with the Holy Spirit. They understand that persecution and hardship is part and parcel of the mission of Christ that they must go the way of the Savior. They go back, and St. Luke writes that they, when released, they went to the community, they told them everything that the chief priests and scribes had said to them, and when they all heard this, what did they do? They lifted up their voices and praised and thanked God with one heart. They quote Psalm 2. Psalm 2 is important in that God had foretold, it's God speaking, why is there this uproar among the nations? The psalmist says, Why this impotent muttering of the people? Kings on earth take up their position against the Lord and his anointed one, against Christ, against those he has sent, against the church to this very day. It's as if the kings and leaders of the world, he says, princes plot together, take up their position against in resistance to the anointed one of God. And it shall be this way until the end of time, because it's the word of God. It will be fulfilled until the end of time. So they enter into prayer. And we get in this, this last section of chapter 4 of Acts of the Apostles, another one of these beautiful snapshots of the early church, of the Christian community, of what it should be to be a member of the church and the Christian community anywhere in the world until the end of time how they respond to persecution. They're not afraid. They enter into prayer. And what is their prayer? Their prayer is not that God will take care of their enemies and that he will set them free from this kind of persecution. Their prayer is rather this. They say, verse 29, And now, Lord, take note of their threats. Take note of what is happening. But they've handed themselves over in service to the Lord. And help your servants to proclaim your message fearlessly. What they ask is simply the strength, the fortitude, the courage to go on proclaiming Christ to the whole world by stretching out your hand to heal and to work miracles and marvels through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. They understand that God is willing, is going to work miracles through them because they have the Holy Spirit living in them, working in them, 
And when they proclaim the name of Jesus, in the power of, of Jesus' name, that miracles will be worked. Now we say, well, we try to pray this way. We have the Holy Spirit living in us, presumably. We proclaim the gospel and Christ to the whole world. But where are the miracles? God does not always work through physical miracles, which we like because they're sensational. Because we're incarnate, because we live in a world that is tangible, visible, physical to us, we are always amazed by miracles that are physically visible in their manifestation, such as the case with the man who is crippled from birth. But the greater miracles of God are really the miracles of the human heart. The heart that is cleansed and converted to God. It's easy for God to work miracles in the natural order. They're all miracles of God. But the natural order, apart from man, is not created in God's image and likeness. We, mankind, men and women, are created in God's image and likeness. We have free will. We have the freedom, the power to choose in our heart. So for God to cure a wounded heart, for God to make whole one who is crippled in his heart, for God to raise to new life one who is dead in his heart, is a far greater thing because we are free beings. We are made in God's image and likeness. So these works are greater and they go on every day in the world. And many of them, most of them are hidden. But we must not forget what the church herself does not forget. And it is this, we must simply do our job in going forth and proclaiming the word and in revealing the love of God, the saving love of God in his son. We must do our part and let God work his miracles because they're God's miracles. They're God's works. That's why Peter says, it's not because of our power, or our holiness. It's because of God. They belong to God. All the time and everywhere, God is using people who are willing to be emptied of themselves, humble servants of the Lord. He is using them to touch the hearts and minds of those around us, to speak in a way to people that prompts them to think of God. It can be a stranger. It can be some act of charity, some act of justice, of honesty, done in the presence of others that touches someone that we don't know, a stranger we never will know in this life. And the stranger thinks, you know, I need to maybe work on my relationship with God. I haven't been to church in 20 years. Maybe I should start going to church again. And they have a desire. They don't know why it's there, but all of a sudden it's there. And maybe then the coming Sunday they respond to it. They don't understand how everything is connected, but God understands how it's connected. So it's beautiful, this prayer that the apostles pray, which is simply that, Lord, help your servants to proclaim your message fearlessly. And you, Lord, stretch out your hand to heal and work miracles and marvels through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. They hand it over to God. There's trust. Also in the community, if we read ahead onto the end of the chapter, we see that there is simplicity of heart among them. There is detachment from the things of the world, from possessions and so on. There is this desire to make sacrifices out of consideration for others, to give things up, 
to do things in deference to others. There is joy in the community, generosity in the community, and there's a pure kind of integrity of honesty in the community. It is what every Christian community of people should have. This is what we read of the early Christians. These are models, these little snapshots that St. Luke gives us in Acts of the Apostles. These scenes are models for us that we should take to heart. Now, this is one reason that what we read at the beginning of chapter 5 is so disquieting to us. It's the incident that happens with Ananias and Sapphira. They had told the apostles that they were going to sell a certain property and that they were going to give the money to the church, to the apostles. As St. Luke says elsewhere, that people would sell their goods and they would place the money at the feet of the apostles to use for the apostolic church, to use for the needs of the poor of God, to use in whatever way they saw fit. The problem is not that they are punished because they don't hand everything over to God. God has never demanded of everyone in the world to hand over all of the blessings and goods he has given to each person. He places on the heart of some this kind of sacrifice, but in fact for many of us it is something practical about our life that we must have certain goods that we go through life with to take care of our own families and friends. The problem is that they, they lied, they were hypocrites, they said something and went back on their word. And this is a very serious matter with God. Even in the Old Testament, God tells his people, when you speak something with your mouth, you must carry out what you have said. This line, this dishonesty, this false witness is a serious matter with God. And we have to remember that language is power. When we speak in our words, we are revealing something about our person. And if we say one thing and then act another way, there is that, that break, the rupture of sin. It's evidence of, of almost like a split personality, so to speak. But we're talking here of sin. Jesus, and it's recorded in the Gospel of Matthew, he announces in his teaching for every unfounded word you utter. This is for all of us. He says you will be held accountable on Judgment Day. He says, since it is by your words that you will be justified, and by your words you will be condemned. Now, we are a bit unsettled, perhaps, about what happens with Ananias and Sapphira. But we must keep in mind that when Scripture reveals that someone, for example, is destroyed or falls over dead because they have touched the Ark of the Covenant, or in this case, they have, they have lied by their own choice to the apostles, it still doesn't mean that we know the eternal destiny of their souls. God is always perfectly wise, perfectly good. God is salvation. We must never forget that. God is love. Everything that he does is about salvation. Now, we cannot talk in any specific way about the judgment of particular souls, but there is evidence in Scripture and even in the world around us that many times God allows things to happen to teach people, to instill in people a holy fear of God or reverence for the holy things of God. And there also, there is the matter of retribution. There is the matter. I mean, Jesus himself speaks about, about the fires of hell so that we know that it is a place where some go to, some who do not love God.
But St. Paul, in writing his letter to the Romans, takes up this point and says, if our injustice serves to bring God's saving justice into view, because isn't this what happens in this scene? The injustice of Ananias and Sapphira serves to bring God's saving justice into view. St. Paul says, can we then say that God is unjust? That God is the unjust one, he says, to speak in human terms, when he brings down retribution upon us. When St. Paul says we are speaking in human terms, he's referring to the fact that we often project onto God human ways of thinking, human solutions, human ways of interpreting things. And when people say that was the retribution of God that fell upon them, yes, Scripture speaks of retribution, but we don't know that that's the final word on that particular matter. God does reveal, He forewarns us of retribution and of hell. But St. Augustine, and speaking of this same mystery, and there were a few other church fathers who said in regard to Ananias and Sapphira that God took their physical life from them to preserve their eternal life. That he struck them down in this life so that they would not be lost to him forever. So there is that possibility. We can't help but recall the, the mysterious story of St. Rita of Cascia, whose family was always caught up in the feuds in Italy. This is in about the 15th century. Her husband had been murdered and she had two grown sons and they wanted to get revenge because revenge was much the way of life with these feuding families. And she besought her sons, she begged them not to do this for fear that they would lose their eternal life, that they would lose their souls over it. But she could not persuade them. They were absolutely bent on getting revenge over their father's death and they intended to do it so she began to pray to God and she prayed that she not lose her sons eternally. She said, Lord, if they are going to be lost, she says, because they want nothing more than to have their lives be informed by this life of crime and revenge. She said, I would rather that you take their earthly life from them to spare them the loss of their eternal life. And mysteriously, both of her sons, young sons, died in less than a year. She thanked God for answering her prayer because she believed that he spared their eternal life. So we do not, we do not know in this case, but in these instances, God is always teaching us with what Christ himself teaches us in the Sermon on the Mount. He says, let your yes mean yes and let your no mean no. Anything else comes from the evil one. We must learn to be true in our speech and to follow through in our actions. Anything else than that is going to be, will be sinful. God also says to his servant Paul, he writes this in his letter to the Corinthians, each one should give as much as he has decided on his own initiative, not reluctantly or under compulsion. And when Ananias comes forward, Peter reminds him that he did not have to sell that property, nor did he have to give the money to the apostles. Even if he had decided to sell it, he could have kept it. The problem, he reminds him, is in the lie, is in the hypocrisy, and he loses his life. God gives Ananias' wife, Sapphira, a chance to recant, a chance to come clean and to admit to the wrongdoing so that when she comes in, not knowing that her husband 
has been struck down dead. Three hours later, his wife, Safira, comes in, and St. Peter questions, tell me, was this the money that you received for the property that you sold? At that moment, she makes a decision in her heart. We all have times like this in our life where God is, maybe through the instrumentality of another person or a dialogue with someone, but he is asking us one more time, will you tell me again what was decided upon? Will you tell me again about your actions or what you did? And we have this moment, it's like, what will I do? Am I going to come clean? Am I going to tell the full truth? And he's asking us, but to do what Sephira does is self-destructive. She makes a momentary decision in her heart, and she says yes to Peter, that was the price. And he says, well, you shall be carried away by the very people who are returning from having buried your husband. And she dies that instant. St. Paul, in also writing to the Corinthians, says, if we were more critical of ourselves, if we were critical of ourselves, we would not be condemned. God is calling everyone in these matters to conversion of heart. He says, but when we are judged by the Lord, we are corrected by the Lord to save us from being condemned along with the world. Now, what is the end result of this scene? The fruit of God's action is that it instills a holy fear in the people of God and in everyone else. It reverberates throughout that part of the world, through the holy city of Jerusalem and probably into the countryside. I mean, this would have been an amazing story an amazing event that took place. St. Luke says in verse 11 of chapter 5, at the end of this, with the death of Ananias and Sapphira, a great fear came upon the whole church and on all who heard it. Glory be to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Spirit. Amen. Thanks for listening to Knowing the Scriptures Bible Study on Real Presence Radio. Lessons, study guides, and other material can be found at sacredheartproductions.org. Please tune in next time while we continue Acts of the Apostles. Dr. George will be covering chapter 5, verse 12 through chapter 7, which include the following three topics. The work of God is indestructible. Second, deacons in the early church. And third, the martyrdom of Stephen. Knowing the Scriptures Bible Study is designed to help people understand Scripture in light of sacred tradition. All lessons include related questions and relevant readings from the Catechism of the Catholic Church. Knowing the Scriptures is produced by Sacred Heart Productions, whose mission is to proclaim Christ and His love for His Bride, the Church.